I don't think enough people have been talking to their customers. Yeah. Because like we've talked to a lot of people and there's a lot of stress and a lot of annoyance and like there's a lot of like using stuff that's existed for a long time um, that hasn't gotten any better. There's a lot of like complacency in the market. And so the idea of like, what what is it like if it's video first mm-hmm. and you make it really easy to make a feed that's really compelling, it's you end up building something totally different. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we decided to do it. That's so cool, man. So, okay, so I have an immediate like question for you, which I was just reflecting on in the process of even like this. Why is this stuff all still so complicated? Like <clears throat> the process of just trying to like, get a camera into Riverside. Like, it feels like there should be something that's, like, you record. Like, people are trying to have conversations and record them all the time. But I've had, like, so many obnoxious technical issues with this sort of stuff. And, like, I'm curious for you as someone on, like, more of the back end, if you have any insight to why that seems like such a cluster all the time. Um, I think it's a cluster because the tech is constantly switching. And so you need some kind of interface that works for everyone having a different camera, maybe even week to week. Um, and uh, there, it's a part that people think of as like a pro part and pros are used to complex things. Mm-hmm. And so, but then what ends up happening is like the problem solved because like your pro can do it, but the average person is so intimidated that they never even attempt it. Yeah. And that's why you see things take off that are actually like deceptively simple. And you're like, this has existed forever. And why is this taking off right now? It's like, it's taking off because you obfuscated a lot of those things. You just made it so it's not a choice. Right. Know? Like the the new continuity camera from Apple. Uh-huh. Have you have you played with it at all yet? No. You have to have like the beta to play with it. Basically, you use your phone as your webcam. Okay. And uh, you have to be in the new Mac OS beta to have it. I'm on it. And it now it just shows up everywhere. Like it just says Chris Average camera. And I could turn it into this. And the, it looks amazing. And it will it will like default to it in FaceTime and stuff. I think that's going to be what we see is like things that you'll everyone will be surprised. Like why is this taking off so much? Like you're walking around with the phone. You don't realize how good the camera is. That solves all these other problems for you. It's super you know, ultra high resolution. So you can crop in on the right. All these things are going to be solved through software. Right. But the actual interfaces, yeah, it's just people still undervalue making them easy. Right. Because they think it's for press. Well, it feels like there's so many layers of, like, it's interesting. It makes sense when you mentioned like Apple, because they have all that integration down the whole pipeline, right? Because it's like, I have like a Blackmagic Ultra Studio and that was working in OBS, and then all of a sudden it's not. And I read a thing that it's like, oh, the latest update to Intel Max broke that with OBS. And it's yeah. like, what in the yeah. world? Like, there's so many stupid, like, something in the chain changes, and now, yep. like, six other different people have to figure out how to get their stuff to all still work, which is yep. where it seems like a lot of these, like, built-in Apple-type integrations end up working out because it's like they control that whole chain where when they change something, they can change everything else. But all these other people are always trying to yes. like catch up and stuff's breaking all the time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think it's a, when they realized they had to have it vertically integrated and they could make it do that so that it was much easier for the end user, You keep we keep seeing things that come out like in the newest software, the newest hardware, that like if you're a pro, you had access to five years ago and you're like, why do you care about this? And it's like, because no one was even doing it five years ago. Most people weren't doing it five years ago because 
it was too intimidating. Like we we underestimate the power of making something easier. Yeah. How does that play out for Wistia? I so it's funny. So, you know, we just launched this new product, Wistia Live, and it's the ability to do live streaming and host a webinar. And one of the things that was really important to us was that you could have multiple live feeds, different people, and you could create layouts. So one person up or two people up in a conversation, two people with the screen, multiple people up with the screen, four people in a conversation, switching in between the stuff. And you were just talking about OBS which is how we ran our webinars ourselves before this. It's just multiple cameras, you know, multiple camera feeds coming in and switching it to make it more interesting. But most people are intimidated by it. So we're like, instead of doing that, we're going to put this in a web interface mm-hmm. and we're going to give you the power of basically a little tiny version of OBS. Um, you can still use OBS with it. So if you're a pro, you could do it. But we realized that this, the layouts would be the valuable thing because it was previously only available to a pro. Right. That makes sense. It does so make we'll sense. make it so, yeah. And I, there's just lots of stuff like that. So someone commented on my LinkedIn post, like, oh, shouldn't, aren't you like late to the game with this? I was like, well, if, if we were just building like a crappy webinar thing, then yes, we're late to the game. But if we're making a thing that lets you actually make, take multiple video feeds and stream them, make something more compelling, we might, you could argue that we're late. You could argue that we're at the right time, but there's not a lot of stuff that does this. Yeah. Then you go to the mode of like, if we make it so easy because we have all this other stuff in the platform that you just get as a benefit right out of the gate. So an example is editing, which we now have the most simple editor on earth. It's like more simple than the editor on your phone is in Wistia. But what that means is you go live, you create this feed that's more compelling the second it's done, it's automatically recorded. You screwed something up, you cut it out. There was the beginning when you're getting comfortable, or you screw, or you're waiting for somebody, or there was a blip, or whatever. You cut it out, and you're not you're not asking, you're not downloading, you're not exporting, you're not thinking about formats, you're not thinking about anything. Then it's finished. It's still all on the web because it's all in one. Then you decide where you're putting it. You know, is it on your site? Is it in an email? Is it on LinkedIn? Like what you you get the choice, but it's. It's like compounding benefits by making all these things easy and putting them in the same place. Right. Dude, I feel that. I mean, even with just like trying to figure out this podcast workflow and social clips, it's like such a cluster of like download raw asset assets, put it into Premiere, export vertical and horizontal versions with overlays, yeah. run that into Descript, caption it all, pull clips, export to YouTube, export to... And it's like... Yeah so many files to keep track of and so many like layers of now you've got one conversation turns into 40 gigabytes of data across all these clips and masters. And it's like, and you know what you're doing, but what (laughs) we see is most people say they want to do it and they don't do it. Yeah. Like that, you know, it's, it's actually shocking to me how many great podcasts and video podcasts I see that people don't do the simple thing of literally just taking their Zoom recording and repurposing the clips to grow the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I think it's just like, it's it's overwhelming for people. It was overwhelming for me until I got Descript, honestly. Like that was the first tool that was like, oh, now like pulling clips from long conversations is a lot less overwhelming. Cause it was always like, yes. I know the good moments of the conversation, but like scrolling through a waveform in Premiere to try and find that bit where we talk yeah. about something oh, you can't is obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So like search, this whole like AI text generated search thing, I think is a real game changer for people trying to do that kind of stuff, which is interesting. I saw that Wistia has some sort of similar 
embedded feature. Is that correct? Uh, in terms of having like, like searching the video. Yeah, we have transcripts built in. You can search the transcript. Um, we've automated transcripts um, for all like new videos, basically on the new plans that we launched. Um, and the reason we did that is like, well, it's obvious. Like, you know, you you have there's more information, more data. It's more accessible. Um, you can then search through this stuff, and then you can start to repurpose it and think about it differently. But mm. you, it's it's a layer that's become more important. And also, I mean, for years you've been able to get 100 percent ac- uh, accurate captions through Istia. We use another service that does this, and it takes your video file, it sends it off, and it it would do like an automated layer. And then there's actual human beings who go through. And they make sure that like people's names are spelled right and brands are the right brands and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's really expensive. Yeah. And so while it's been available for a long time, it's really expensive. So most people weren't doing it. And now the automated transcription is getting so good that the number of updates that you need to make is a lot smaller. And, but that means that a much higher percentage of content is getting those automated transcriptions. Right. I'm curious, like... It feels like so much of the conversation that I see recently is around everyone's obsessed with like algorithms and reach and discovery. And Mm -hmm. so platforms like Vimeo and Wistia and stuff are really interesting to me in a world that is obsessed with these other like I don't I don't even know how you would describe the difference there. But so I was just curious sort of like your perspective on native mm-hmm. video versus these bigger platforms and search and algorithms and like it's a crazy world out there right now that I think is like easy to be overwhelming for a lot of people and like yeah. how do you see that? I think it's kind of simple. So for me, although I'm the guy running the platform, so <laughs> is is um you know, it's basically thinking about like what are your own channels? Uh, what are the things that you have total control over? You know, if you're a SaaS business, e-commerce business, like your website is your own channel, your email, usually you have full control over. And in those contexts, it's going to make sense to say like, hey, I want to see how this stuff is performing on my own channel. I want to get a baseline of of which things move the needle or not. I want to tie viewing back into sales. I want to f- tie viewing back into like interest behavior, stuff like that. And then there's all these other, the the social channels. And now, you know, if you TikTok is in there, it's kind of like the entertainment, social and entertainment channels will say where um, you should be, your goal should be to build a following on those different social and entertainment channels. But you also have to know that it's, it's, you're building on rented land. Mm-hmm. And so the rules can change. And what that means is sometimes one channel is really good for a year, two years, five years, six months, and then they change the rules. And it switches and you actually have to, if you don't have a baseline, if you don't have an email list, if you don't have website traffic, if you don't have that that baseline as those channels switch, your business disappears, right? So like you have to have both basically. Right. And so for us, our goal is give you that like to be that central hub um, and give you the insights and give you the tools to manage the content that where you control and even potentially organize it across the other channels if you want. Um, and... Like hopefully, you know, if it's a balanced strategy, you're learning from the onsite, you're learning from the owned, and you're using that to propel the the social and entertainment, and then you're learning from that, and you're using that to propel like the owned content. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's something that it's funny because that's come up in a few conversations for me recently. Was like the the value of things like email lists in a world where the algorithms can so quickly turn on you. It feels like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
which is funny because it's like it felt like this thing for a while that was like dying. It's like, oh, we just have all this like free reach with like online video and like emails dead. And it's like now everyone's putting stuff out and only 10% of the people who have opted into seeing their stuff are seeing it. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> how do we actually consistently get in touch with the people who have said they want to hear from us? Which is an interesting place for like that combination of, you know, native video and owned communication platforms and things like community, like the new text platforms, I think are really interesting too. Obviously you need like specific brand relationships for that level of engagement to make sense. But yeah, that, that I feel like people are swinging back around to like, we want some level of ownership after seeing like the slowdown of a lot of this algorithmic push from the last few years. Yes. I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, it is about that balance and you realize, you know, it, this the value of the view is different on every platform, mm-hmm. right? Like it should be highest on in a place where your where your owned audience is, right? Like even you know, whatever the thing is, like if it's your goal is to get people onto your email list, then that view is much more valuable than a view where your goal is to get someone to interact with you on an entertainment platform, but like they have no inherent connection to you, the creator. Like it's just it's just different. It's funny, I was um, on my podcast, uh, one of the things that we did is we said, hey, let's just go and do a survey and see what do people like? What don't they like? Like, what should we have more of? What should we have less of? And I was telling someone else about this and they're like, how'd you do a survey? How do you even know who the the viewers and listeners are? And I'm like, well, it's hosted on our website. So you can go to the website, you can sign up via email. We have a bunch of people who have subscribed via email to get each episode emailed to them. And it's become a pretty small fraction of the overall audience, but they're so engaged that we send out a survey. It's like instantaneous. We like this. We don't like that. We like this type of banter. We don't like that type of banter. We want more of this thing. And it's like actually so easy to understand what to do because of that. But if I didn't have that direct connection, it'd be much harder to know. Mm, That's really interesting. What are you using for that, for like the email opt-ins? We're using a Wistia channel, okay. um, so you can host a podcast on Wistia and basically, you know, have the channel be on your site, and then you can, um, you know, syndicate through RSS to all the platforms. Gotcha. That's very cool. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's. But I, I, you know, I like to, I like to use my own stuff. That's kind of my thing. So I mean, you might as well, right? Like if you, if you didn't, it wouldn't be a great endorsement. So yeah, th- that is a cool option, though. How do you think about like? Because that brings up another thing that I have felt some internal tension around, which is like the the proper the proper use of data and feedback versus sort of like owning your decisions and like charting a path towards what you believe in. Because I see some people that it feels like it's sucked in circles by audience feedback, but then there's also value. So like, how do you, as someone who also provides video data, like that's another thing where people can get so in the weeds on. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying. So tell me, tell me what you want to say. Well, I think, I mean, you're saying is like, how do you, how do you hold steadfast in the face of bad data? Or like, how do I look at data when we're making decisions? Yes. How do you parse data? Because it's easy to be overwhelmed by all this data and everyone has an opinion and there's always going to be people who don't like things. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll just go. There's a bunch of stuff. Dig in wherever you want. So like I I, I would say that um, I've become very comfortable with the idea that if if there aren't people who don't like what you're doing, then you probably 
not opinionated enough or not true to yourself enough. Because there's no way you're walking around everything you're saying everyone agrees with. That's just not going to be the case. Like you're milk toast. Like no one cares. So some people disagreeing or something, but people outwardly saying it's bad is probably a good sign. I'll give you an example of like how extreme this has gotten. I did an episode of my podcast talking too loud at a conference and there was a thousand people watching us live, which was insane. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, I'm used to doing it like this. Um, and doing it remotely with no audience. It was very weird to do it with an audience. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw probably like five, eight people get up and leave like 10 minutes in. And I smiled to myself when that happened because I'm like, this isn't for everyone. And if five people leave and the other people stay, that's amazing. This is like ridiculous. Um, especially because some people leaving are permission to other people to leave, right? So I, I think that some people disagreeing with you is probably a good thing and is, is normal. I think... In terms of when you're getting an insight on if something's working or not, qualitative always comes first and then comes quantitative. So there's lots of things I've believed and hoped and actually the the that were very successful. And if you looked at like the the data on usage or the data on signups in the first week, it might be slightly different than it was the week before. But in all the chat, in all the sales conversations, in all the DMs, and all it, it came up a lot. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of specific things people liked. And that's just how it works. Like it always is qualitative first. And so you have to value the qualitative really high, I think, at the beginning. Um, that transitions, the longer you're doing something, you know, the more uh, the more reps and sets you do, then it really does switch towards quantitative and it should. What is the actual impact? How many subscribers am I getting per week? How much engagement do I have? What's the viewing time? All those things like that is where you want to get to, but that can't be where you start. Um, so I think those things are important. And then I think the last thing, how do you make decisions or how do you stay on something if the data isn't good, but you believe in it? And I think about that, the way you need to do that is basically make sure that your system of operating your business, if it's a business, you know, you want to make long-term decisions, make, try to make yourself profitable. Like try to get to a place where you actually can make long-term decisions and they're not hard trade-offs versus um, being forced to only make short-term decisions. Like mm. you have to set up the system so that it allows you to be long-term focused if you want. And, and usually when you, when you do that, you can follow your instincts more easily. Right, right. <clears throat> that makes so much sense. I, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I would say is I often look at I think it's really easy to critique other people's strategies, approaches, products, businesses. It's We all have an easy time of doing this because we're all evaluating products all the time, right? It's like, do I want to buy these new shorts? Like, are they, are they better? Are they more flexible? Are they bad? Are they good? Is it too expensive? Is it too cheap? Like, we're just used to this. This is how we operate. But we often have a hard time doing that with ourselves. And it is because when you're doing it with yourself, you understand the emotional pain, the emotional labor, um, the operational complexity that goes into making the decision. <laughs> so it might be like, I'm in the business of making shorts and actually I should be making exercise videos. And it's like, that's a different thing. That's a completely different, like, so you're telling me I have to start a new thing and find new people and get experts and build out these. Yes, that's what I'm, all that stuff. Um, and... Yet it might be obvious to someone externally, why aren't they doing that? You have to deal with the operational complexity and your brain, it honestly makes it harder to see the obvious thing. So I, I think a lot about that too. It's just like, what would someone outside of this organization say? What would someone from far away say? What's the obvious thing to someone who has no idea 
how simple or complex our business is. And if I can figure that out, often that's like the right thing to do. Right. Dude, that makes so much sense. I feel like that's <laughs> that question has been like something that I've been looking at for myself really hard this last week. I was talking to a, a mentor buddy the other day, and I uh, I'd heard this question that I really like, which is like, what do I not see in myself? And so mm-hmm. I'd asked him that, and he was like, uh, you you don't know who you're for, and you're like, what and your how are mixed up because he's like, you have all these creative skills that you see as what's, and they're really hows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like, it's like, it's a weird thing that I've been in my own head about that's like, I've spent so much time in like advertising and content creation. And I don't know, like, I see a lot of room for impact there. But I, I guess I've just been trying to almost open my own mind to that idea of like, is there something obvious I'm missing here that's like the pivot from shorts to videos or, you know, whatever yeah. else it is? Um, and I don't have an answer for that yet, but it's just funny to hear you bring that up because that was where I'm like, am I am I losing the forest through the trees here? You know. Um, well, what made you do this show? This show? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I wanted to talk to people from different industries about the the process of like learning that maybe the world didn't work exactly the way you thought it worked at first and then what you did to like pursue something you cared about after finding that information. Okay. And there was like, was there something that like in your life that happened or something that just like caused you to get, like, did you have some realization that you'd never had before and it made you see everything differently or you, were you looking for one? I think like, It was more like I kept feeling the edge of like in the context of doing all this commercial filmmaking stuff and meeting all these people. Like we did an interview with Ralph Lauren and stuff and um, just talking to these guys that it's like whenever I talk to really high-level people about how they think about things and their strategies and goals, it's like very not what gets like touted on the internet a lot, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like when we were talking to Ralph, he's like, I don't buy any of this stuff for like – money reasons. I just buy it because I love it and I have it and I don't sell anything. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. And so like having conversations with people about, you know, like the, one of the conversations that we had was with this guy, John Rulin, who I'm a fan of, but he has a like gift-based marketing agency and sort of this idea that like gen- the role of generosity in marketing. And I was really curious about that because I feel like I've seen so many conversations around marketing that are very just like get focused, right? It's all this like short term, like how do I how do I spend 20 bucks to make a hundred bucks and twist your arm yeah. online? Yeah. And so it was really just like a venue for me to be like, I like having these con- kinds of conversations with people around what they love and like the creative ways they've found to bring themselves to bear on the world in some way, I guess. Uh, but it's, it feels a little bit like a process, like it's a, it's untangling its own knot as it goes too. Like, I don't know. It was originally like, originally I, I think what I had called it was something about like, the it was exploring the intersection of art and science or something or like performance and art. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, like there's this weird itch in my brain that I can't quite get out that's like, it's not all as logical, externally logical as I feel like. It's easy well, to think things it are, is. Things are much simpler than they appear. Sure. Is, uh, what I'm hearing, what you're saying. There's like a lot of like, 
I've definitely noticed a thing of the more, I mean, I've been doing Wistia 16 years is a long time. And I never thought I would do it this long. Mm. I mean, I think when I met you was probably eight years ago, something like that, right? Probably, yeah. And at that moment, would I have thought I'd do this for another eight years? No, I absolutely would not have thought that. Now, do I think I will do it for another eight years? Yes, I think I will, which seems insane because, like, again, I thought this was going to be like a six-month thing in the first place. But um, I think now a lot of stuff, like, I didn't even understand in the early days a lot of things that we were doing that were working really well. And some of the things we're doing that were just like an absolute distraction or even drags on success. Yeah. Where having done it long enough, it just seems simpler and simpler as to like what you need to actually do. And I I've I've tried to pay close attention to folks who are they've been at what they're what they're doing for a long time, you know, 20 years, 30 years or more. They're like, how can they talk so simply right. about these things? And I think a lot of it is realizing that so much of what we do is like a waste. And that the right core things though are where all the value is. And so Ralph Lauren saying like, yeah, I just buy things I think are cool. Like that's probably what it was at the beginning. And then you overthink it and business lines and, you know, which products should come next. And then it just goes back to like, I should buy things and make things that are cool. Right. You're like, what? It's that simple. It's not so simple. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And that's like, so there's this other like weird side thing, I guess for me, which is like, I, I have this personal enjoyment, which has been like a personal side art project almost, I feel like, of sort of remixing a lot of ancient, what I think of as like ancient wisdom that the more people I talk to is still true, but like the, Mm -hmm. it's all become so tropey that like we can't hear it anymore almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that idea of being like, how do you, um, you know, these simple things like play the long game or something that it's like, yeah. It really is that simple a lot of the times. Like, and like you said, there's like a catch of like, you have to create short-term leverage that allows you to have a margin to play a long game. But yes. like it, that idea of like digging into what are the what are the simplest universal truths about the human experience is something that's fascinating to me. And like whenever I've gone around and talked to musicians or athletes or business owners or whatever else, it's like all all I can see is how those things are all the same, like mm-hmm. contextually different, but meta the same. Mm-hmm. And like telling that story is really interesting to me. That's cool. Yeah, that's very cool. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Like that's where it's still like I talk to people like, I don't know what the like business pitch for that is other than that it's fun for me. <laughs> I uh, There is a but side. That's, sorry, but that's part of it. If it's, I, I at least have learned over the years, like if it's actually fun, you can keep doing it. Mm. And if it's not, you can't. Mm. I, I think a lot about that. Just like, it's like, all right, you might find an opportunity you, you, and it seems like an obvious opportunity for anything, but you can't guarantee when it's going to hit. Mm-hmm. Like, when will you be successful? When will it happen? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So what's the secret? What's the thing you can control? You can control if it's actually enjoyable while you're going after the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And if you can figure out how to do that, you can go out, you can work on hard problems for a long time. Right. And that's usually what wins. And by the time you get to that place of like massive success, you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I can do this. Like, why can't I do the next thing? When you of 10 years ago would look at you and be like, oh my God, who are you? You're so this, that's what my dream is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think a lot about that is like, a lot of the secret is just trying to get, at least for me, that's how it's, it's like, can I enjoy the ride? And if I can, if I can enjoy the ride of working on the hard problems, then it'll all be fine. Right. 
Yeah. And that's, that's really the mode that I've been trying to settle into this last year and just be like, I'm just going to make, I don't know, sort of like make avenues to like explore the things that are interesting to me and share them with people and just see what comes of it the next day. I think that there's like, it's funny because I almost feel like I have this resistance to um, like the the instrumentalization of like a value pitch, but like something that I've been seeing the last few months even is like the the way that I see things does have a value in like marketing creative direction because mm-hmm. when I look at like all the great marketing campaigns, they're all tied into these simple truths that a lot of people don't know how to remix and own. And so this idea of like, well, how can we take what you're trying to say and tie it into, this is something I've never said out loud, so I'm curious your thought on this. It's it's almost like tapping a deeper version of a meme, that it's like a meme is this like riffable container for context now, right? Where it's like, okay, let's mm-hmm. take a, let's take a almost infinitely replicable situation that is approachable to someone. It's like this micro container of a scene and then give the audience the room to project their own context into it. Mm-hmm. So if you can take a lot of these ancient and modern stories, truisms and wisdom and package them together around the new context of the product, service, whatever else, and connect it to this bigger human experience that you have a chance, a much greater chance of actual impact. And I feel like that's something that are what my experience in a lot of marketing content has been is that like it's it's like all data and no impact a lot of the time. And so like that's something that's like I don't really know where I'm going with that or how that would play out, but that is one of the things that I've been like, man, when people let us like actually leverage this way of thinking, every time I've done that, there's like really massive impact. But then the next time I talk to people, it's like, well, we want to make a, you know, 30 second Instagram video that sells our product. And it's like, I don't know how to help you with that. I mean, I do, but it's not going to work that well, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, as you're saying that, basically the way, the thing I was thinking is like, there are just really basic emotions. Yes. That's that's it. It's just like, are you afraid of something? Am am I going to make you afraid of something and give you an answer? Am I going to like make you crave something? because it it makes you feel like a different person or like am I going to try to do something that sparks joy and happiness and like there's that's there's just basic emotions you can get someone to feel and that's the heart of any campaign and to your point the thing that always happens that doesn't work is when you say let me just tell everyone my features yeah and there's no life in it right and i guarantee you 100% of the time if you could pick between like you know a product, let's just say a product launch video, right? A product launch video that is like actually genuinely fun and engaging. Mm -hmm. And it lists all the features and all the things that the thing does. And then one next to it that isn't genuine, but it lists all the features and everything else. I promise you the fun, engaging one that's genuine will win. Right. It's just because that's, we're human beings. And I think that that's what we all forget is like, there's just a human there. I don't care what industry you're in. I don't care how, B2B it is, you know, where it's like you think it's some corporate thing or some really expensive thing someone needs to buy and they don't they, you know, they don't care about like the personality and the brand or whatever. Like they're all human beings. We all watch Netflix. You know, so some of us are in a House of Dragon, some of us are into the new Lord of the Rings. They you know like it's this but like you still go to work. And right. I think that we we miss that 
and uh, it just plays a fundamental role. Like I think a lot about that too is just as human beings, I think we're wired. Our society is wired to share stories. That's that's what our history has been, right? Is just sharing stories with one another. And our brains really like stories as a way to remember things. And stories have, you know, they have pain and they have tragedy and they have excitement and they have allure and they have all the, and if they don't have those things, it's not a good story. So you just have you just have to figure out how to tell a good story, which ultimately has actual emotion in it. Right. Well, that that's been such a big thing of like what I've been probably honestly overcomplicating in my own head, but trying to drill down to is like, I think so much of my experience has been that people are almost like afraid of actually evoking an emotion in anyone. That it's like, I've been in so many Mm -hmm. conversations where it's like, oh, well, if we said that, you know, basically like people's blood might move on some level. And so it's like- Yeah, or what if it doesn't work? It's a little scarier. Right. And so you get into this very like, entirely risk averse data driven world of how do we write a script that appeals to everyone have a cast that perfectly depicts the perfect target audience and you get into this very just like truman show feeling reality that it's like i and that doesn't resonate yeah like i can't no one on set is into it no one offsets definitely not gonna be into you can it, tell you, know? it. you can just tell i mean every time you can tell right it's and i think it is yeah, it's just we're really good at sniffing out good stories and bad stories. Right. That's we're like trained to do that for a very young age. That is that's what we do. And so I do think it's like, yeah, if you don't care, it's not gonna matter. And then I think the other thing is failure. We don't celebrate failure enough. Right. In the sense of like, if you make a thing and it fails and no one sees it, no one saw it. So it's not like some massive embarrassment. Like mm-hmm. very few people interact. They like People saw it briefly and moved on to something else. That's that's all that happened. Right. And I think like we forget that sometimes. We get two in our heads. And um, the way to switch it is like, okay, if that's going to be what happens, then just how do I try more different stuff? Right. And you could actually feel more comfortable taking risks because probably only a lot of people are going to see it if it does connect in some way. Right. Then if And if it connects in some real way, it could be incredibly positive or it could be incredibly negative. So personally, I try to skew towards positive things, but like I think that's everybody's choices to what they want to do. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's all about that core, the the storytelling core, the emotional core, and getting comfortable. I think that you like failure is not a bad thing if you do it quickly and you learn from it. Right, totally. And that that was like another piece for me that I was uh, I was reading this book recently um, called The Beginning of Infinity, but he said something that really hit me, which was like, people are almost never creative in areas in which they are pessimistic. Yeah. And I feel like so much I love that. Yeah. of what I've seen is like, it's just sort of like, there's so much general cynicism towards like online video now that I feel like that frames a lot of people's willingness to be creative. It's like, well, the algorithm yeah. only wants these three things. So these are the only three things we can do. And it's like, I personally don't believe that. Like, a, yeah. as someone who has some sense of how even the algorithm actually works, I think that's a misunderstanding of how these systems are developing things. But when you view it from a reductionist perspective, you, your world slowly closes in on you until everyone's making the same shitty stuff that they all hate. And it's yeah. like, who is this serving? Which was one of the reasons that I sort of like, 
proactively backed out of that space because I realized it was just rubbing off on me. I was like, I was becoming mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. cynical to this idea that it's like, oh yeah, no one wants to do anything different anymore. No one wants to, like we're all just playing the data game. And it's like, I just, it's like a weird feedback loop. And that was one of the things I was like, I don't, it's weird because I guess that's where I don't really know what I'm doing because so much of my experience has felt like it's in that world. But I do believe, I mean, I see work done by people who are, you know, not thinking about it that way and really prioritizing like story and, and impact and um, honest, authentic, you know, representations of them and their brand. And so it's sort of been a little bit of this like wandering through the desert to get from what felt like a very cynical side of the creative world to like people who actually want to take risks and do cool stuff. You know, it's funny. I think one of my realizations of the last few years has been, you know, it used to be people would ask me because of all the data in Wistia, like, what should my video be? Like how, you know, and it basically was like shorter, better. You know, the shorter it is, higher engagement. Um, you want, you, and if people have no connection to your brand, then you don't want, they're not going to click a thing that's an hour long. Right, that seems unlikely. But they might click something that's 10 seconds long. They might click something that's 30 seconds long. And the way I see the world today is like, well, we basically have TikTok and Reels, which is like, if you can't get me in the first half a, half a second, you're not going to get me. But if I can get you in the first few seconds and you end up there for 10 or 15 and you start to build a connection because you're learning something or you are entertained or what have you, you actually will, we'll see a lot more people spend way more time in long form content. And it might, the number might not be as big in terms of the people who are consuming the long form content, but the brand impact can be outrageous because if you're going to spend an hour with someone over and over again, guess what? You're going to know everything about them. You're going to become one of their biggest advocates. And I think that is, that's kind of what I've seen this bifurcation happen where like a lot of there's like the crazy wild short form stuff to get someone to pay attention for three seconds. But then on the opposite side, you really can experiment and and do things that are so dialed in for your niche that are much longer form. Mm. That makes sense. It feels like another level of like the the middle dissolving in some ways. Yes. I think I think it is. It and by the way, the data backs us up. So since COVID, we have uh, we see way more people watching things that are th more than 30 minutes long or more than an hour long, an hour long. It's like, it's like more than, I think it's about doubled. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. It, it's interesting because I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of the, I don't know. I want to say like, I would just say like film centric marketing world has like sort of not come to terms with the opportunities of that. Because like when I was starting out, it was very much like this, like, heyday of Vimeo, like two to five minute brand film world, right? It was like, yes, yeah. you come out and make this like cinematic, here's what we do, yada, yada. And it would crush. And then slowly it feels like it's slipped to just like longer and shorter and longer and shorter and like higher production value or higher production value and like just quicker, clippier moment stuff. And like yeah. all the people who were so emotionally attached to that middle, just like it does some days feel like that's gone and maybe that's fine. Like maybe there still is a place for that, but that's one of the things that I've been seeing for us too is like, okay, like I really enjoy longer form storytelling and I enjoy the like social high discovery type stuff. So like maybe we can just get better at serving those markets because a lot of people are still in this paradigm that just doesn't seem to be how the world works anymore. I just think it's, we live in a culture that's now just an internet culture. It's it's that simple. Yeah. Like, Culture is completely driven by the web. 
This was happening pre-COVID, but COVID's forced it because everyone's in front of a screen for 18 months, and that's the primary way they interact with each other. Guess what? That changes the game. And so I think it's that the we underestimate that these tiny, you know, tiny, what we would have thought is from a percentage perspective, tiny, tiny, tiny niches online are actually massive. And I, I look at subreddits for this. So like you go into some like, you know, really hyper-specific subreddit and you'll see like 300,000 people in like the tree camping subreddit, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, putting um, hammocks like up into trees and like staying there overnight or whatever. And it's like, they're maybe not all necessarily doing that, but if you could find something that fits for this group, like you're never going to, this is this is insane. Like yeah. this many people who care about this specific of a thing. And so the way to find a lot of success is like, if you go and get 10% or 20% of that market, let's say you're getting 10,000, 20,000 views on each piece of content, it's not going viral. It, you don't think of it as going viral. It actually is. It's an incredibly high percentage of the market. And then if you have something to sell that group, whether it be community or a product, you can get, you can build a, like a pretty nice business yourself. Mm. And I think that's that's the world we live in. Everything that's hyper specific actually has tons of people on an absolute basis, like hanging out there. So the question is, do you have the confidence or, uh, to get like to get focused enough? Because mm-hmm. ultimately, that's what we need to do. And uh, I've I've found this like in the comedy world where I, I was all these comedy podcasts that I just love. They just bring me so joy and it's, it's, it's so much joy. And it's, so many of them are like so funny and absurd and ridiculous. And I I would bet like my favorite comic right now is this guy, Rick Glassman. He's mm-hmm. this, this show called Take Your Shoes Off. And it's so outrageous and absurdist. And he does all these bizarre edits like in the video version of the podcast. Each episode is like an hour and a half long or, or more. And I'll listen to it. And if something's really funny is happening, I'll like swipe up on YouTube and watch. Or if I'm watching on like some other platform, like swipe up and watch the thing. And like, I know that most people aren't going to find him funny. But there's like, you know, 300,000 views per episode or something like that of people who find him. They think he's the greatest guy ever. And if he goes and he wants to play shows and he'll get a huge audience to show up and he sells tons of merch. And like, uh, it's just like, it's not for everyone, and that's the whole point, right. right? But like, if it was trying to be forever, like the I think the number of people will do a breakthrough and make things that are truly for everyone is so small right. today that it's like, you know, if you want to talk about the long tail, we used to talk about that a lot. Like, there's less people at the top, like a lot less, but there's way more people. Like that that true long tail, like we underestimated just how big the internet is right? and like how big the world is. And like, you can be the most niche thing on there and you can get a lot of views and build a real audience and build like something significant just with like a tiny, 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 hyper-specific thing. Right. That makes so much sense. And that like, to that reminds me of this conversation I was having recently, which I would love your thoughts on, which was like, I feel like our sense of scale got blown out for the numbers at some point. That was yeah. like YouTube, we got so used to millions. And then TikTok, we see millions. And it's like if you consistently get even one to 10,000 views of like an actual niche audience, like that's a lot of people. Like in the scheme yes. of depending on the size of your business, but so many like I talk to businesses that are like, oh, we only have like 8,000 people. And it's like, how many people do you need, man? Like what are we trying to do here? You know, but like we've become yeah. so obsessed with how I do we make you, something that yeah. serves a million people? And it's like, you're missing the 10,000 people you actually need. Well, it's funny. If you look at like the podcast data, you can look at, 
you can judge how popular a podcast is based on the number of downloads in the first week. And if you get more than, um, I'm going to see if I have this number right. I think it's, if you get more than 500 downloads in the first week of an episode, you're in like the top 5% of all podcasts. And if you get more than 2,000, you're in like the top 0.1%. Yeah. And when you think about it like that, it's like, wait a second. <laughs> like 500, is that that much? It's like, it actually, yes, it actually is. Because you're forgetting that podcasts are usually long. And so if someone is actually spending time with you and you have 300 people listen to every episode that you put out there, that's the equivalent of going to a conference and giving a talk to 300 people every week. But even at a conference of 300 people, they're not all there for you. Right. You go to a conference of 300 people, I'm expecting half, the third are there. They're going to care. So you're really, you're talking about small numbers. And I think we just get it all warped in our minds of like, oh, if it's not a, a million video views, then we're screwed. Right. And the truth is like, actually, you're getting in the thousands for most business, most businesses, most creators can have an enormous impact if you can monetize basically not just through ads. Right. If you're monetizing through ads, it's a different beast. Like you're going to have to be much bigger. But if you're not monetizing through ads, if you're monetizing through products or services, you really don't need that much to be in the top and to have something that is like really meaningful on the other side. Right. That makes so much sense. It was funny. It was like, I was sort of a, I had like a, mild existential crisis about that. Cause I remember a few years I, uh, I like stepped away from a lot of the stuff I was doing and I, I had, you know, YouTube and a podcast and Patreon and all this stuff. And like at the time I felt like it was so small. Um, and I, I needed to take a break for like personal and mental health reasons and stuff. But then I went back and found out about some of that data and we were getting like 8,000 downloads on podcast episodes about filmmaking. And I was like, oh, this is like statistically really high up the chart. Like, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, again, it's not Rogan or anything, but when you reframe your sense of scale, it's like, oh, I was already above the sort of like breaking point on this. Um, oh, and also if we, if you go back to what we were talking about earlier, basically the secret to that is just to keep doing it. Right. That's the whole thing. Like 8,000 downloads a week is incredible. And like, if you someone were to say to you, I have this podcast that does $8,000 a week, do you want to be on this thing? You'd be like, yeah, that's, uh, sounds great. And I think that this, um, then what would that have been if you did it for another five years or 10 years? Right. It's just that whole timeline. It's just like, it's it's the incremental compounding improvement. Like it's, it's almost that simple, um, but it's very hard in the moment to believe that. I mean, we had this show we did at Wistia called Brandwagon where it's like, a, I don't know if you ever saw this. I didn't. It was like a late, late night style interview show that I hosted that was all about brand and building brands. We had a guest come on each episode. We had all these skits and all these like bits we were doing. Like they would bring like animal, we had a live audience. We had a friggin' animal trainer come on and like snakes, all this insane stuff. And we were all like, we did it every week for like 10 weeks. And we were all so spent. And the production of it was absolutely ludicrous because we did nothing up front. And at the, t at the team was like, oh my God, like we can't do this. This is unsustainable. This is too crazy. And we're like, yeah, and it didn't go viral. Like it didn't get enough views. Like blah, blah, you know, boo-hoo. Each episode, by the way, is like 25 minutes long. I go back and look at the data recently and I'm like, this stuff's insane. There's like hundreds of thousands of views on this thing. It's all on our site. So it was all traffic that converted and bought, got customers and all these like things. 
And we stopped because we thought it wasn't successful. It was wildly successful. And, you know, COVID also threw a wrench in the gears too, because it was right before that, um, which is why we switched to the podcast, Talking Too Loud. But um, it was, yeah, this funny thing of like, in that moment, we had such high expectations. We weren't in touch with like what we were actually pulling off. Right. And I, and I think it's like, that's sometimes why now I look at things. I'm like, all right, the secret is going to be, you're just going to keep doing it. So what are the right things to do? Right. Like another one for us, we just have to keep launching sweet product stuff. That's kind of it. We launch sweet product and you have great videos that launch it. And I promise you, people will pay attention. They'll check it out and they'll use it and it'll stay relevant and it'll evolve and it'll just get better and better and better. But if you if you close that little flywheel, it works. If you don't, it doesn't. Yeah. That makes so much sense. That's really that's really interesting. It is very, very interesting. Um, what, what are you most passionate about right now? Wow. Um, I think, um, I am, uh, you know, uh, we hit on a bunch of different parts of this, I think in this conversation, but I am like really passionate about just like dialing in like a life where, I love what I do every day and I spend a lot of time with my kids and my family. And I also am at work because I'm being fulfilled. And, um, you know, I think like, I think a lot about the, just what's this, what's the simple things that we need and, um, and just how do you set that up? Right. So like, how do you set up like this for me? It's like creative problem solving. Like I, I thrive on having a hard challenge. And I also thrive on like basic habits. And so I've just tried to slowly change and dial in my habits and get them to a place where it's like, I, I'm getting all those things. And so, yeah, it's like, it's just how, how can I live a happy and fulfilled life? And like, how do I appreciate where I'm at while I'm at it, you know, and not just like pine for the next thing. Yeah. And ultimately I think that is like what will allow me to go after those next things. Yeah. But it's just like trying to really stay in the moment, you know? Yeah, dude, I totally, I feel that. That's been a big part of my, I'd say the last like month or two has been this mindset of going from like, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life with one foot in the past and one foot in the future and trying to just like creep the feet together and be like, let's just be mostly here at least. But it's, uh, it's one of, the, that's another one of those things that I feel like is such a. Have you ever heard that thing? Sorry to cut you off, yeah. but have you ever heard that thing? It's like, um, anxiety is in the past. No, sorry. Depression is in the past. Anxiety in the, is in the future. And my feet are right here. Yeah. Yeah. Which is this idea of like centering yourself between those things of like, that's the secret is like to be in the present, which is very hard to do. Right. Yeah. There was another version of that I'd heard that I really liked, which was like, be where your feet are. Yeah. Yeah. And that idea yeah. of like, I'm always out projecting, you know, emotional responses to things that haven't happened or have happened, but not what's actually going on right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, that's, it's been a, it's been a game changer for me. It's funny. I do feel like way more productive and present and like my days are longer. And so now I feel like I've been in this weird world of like spinning around and being like, well, okay, well, like now what do I, what do I want to do? Which is funny. Like, I guess to be totally honest, like, the reflection I was having the last few minutes is just like, I feel like I've spent a lot of time trying to find a way to like 
pivot out of what I used to be doing. And it's almost like, should I just pivot back into it knowing what I know now? You know, because it was like already above a certain break point. And like there were a lot of things that maybe I, uh, a lot of skills I hadn't developed in life that were part of why I ended up having to take a break from it. But uh, I don't know. It's a curious, curious thing for me, I guess. I mean, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And you're, you're, you're a big CrossFitter, right? I have Am been. I At the moment, I'm not like, I'm honestly, this is semantic, but I'm going to just say it because it's curious. Like I've done a lot of CrossFit. I've done a lot of work in CrossFit. I personally, part of my own uh, tendency is like, I burn myself out a lot. And so part of the reason okay. that I stepped away from CrossFit was a tendency to burn myself out too much. Got it. And so I was like, I have to put myself in a mode of training where I don't like put myself into a total fight or flight shock every day. Got it. Got it. Because I, I think a lot about like emotional stress and stress at work and physical stress are all tied together. Mm -hmm. And so if you can manage, if you can train your body to manage physical stress, you can also manage more emotional stress. Mm -hmm. But the only way to manage stress is to recover. Mm -hmm. So in any case, it's like, like I work out five days a week and was a lot of like weight training and stuff and a bunch of like core stuff. And I have come to look at it as like my emotional health is driven in large part by that. Mm -hmm. Because I know I accomplish this hard thing and I feel like really good after the fact, or whatever. And then I go into meetings and I deal with really hard decisions and situations and whatever. And I'm like, well, I already did all these hard things so I can handle this better. And even like another thing that happened for me was having kids where I went from like, I used to work like crazy all the time. I work at night all the time. I loved getting up on a Saturday morning and like getting to work and like feeling like I was like getting ahead of everybody else or whatever. Then I had kids. I'm like, you can't do that. Like they're with, they, they want to spend time with you. You want to spend time with them. And it forced me to like be more organized and also delegate more and like give more to other people. And I realized that I had been holding too many things too close. Mm. And actually like, the secret to my own productivity wasn't productivity tips. It wasn't a productivity hack. It was having great people. It's kind of simple, you know, back to where we were before. So like, how do I build a life that get, lets me manage the stress and spend time with my kids and be happy and be present? And it's like a bunch of different things that like feed into it and a bunch of habits. And ultimately it's about like stress and recovery. Like it's almost like that simple and being organized. Um, and so when I look at like things that we had early on at Wistia and early in my career that felt like they're happening effortlessly and some of them like, well, we were just following our instincts. And so like, I have to be in a position where I can follow my instincts. So we have to run Wistia properly. And it's just kind of simple little things that add up to ultimately trying to be in that place where you feel fulfilled and happy and like on the right path, you know? 100% man.